Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Fairy tales have endured as a part of our culture since at least the days of the Brothers Grimm, and they're still going strong on television, movies, and books today. What do fairy tales mean? What do they reflect in our shared concerns? And what does the continuing trend toward fractured and reinvented fairy tales say about us? We'll talk about this with Lynn McNeil, an instructor and director of online development for the Folklore Program at Utah State University. She's co-founder and of and faculty advisor for the USU Folklore Society. Joins us in studio. Lynn McNeil, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be here. Uh, fun topic. Uh, glad to have you back. Um, and Utah author Rochelle Workman joins us by telephone. She writes, Reinvented Fairy Tales. Her books include A Beauty So Beastly, in which she imagines what would happen if the beauty was also the beast, and her Blood and Snow series is a retelling of Snow White with a vampire twist. Rochelle Workman, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, being with us. Lynn McNeil, uh, I guess the first question is, what is a fairy tale? That's uh, Man, you're starting with the tough questions Question here. that's perplexed people for a long time. Yeah, you'd think it wouldn't be hard, right? You think fairy tale, you think simple story, Disney, kid stuff, easy to define. And it, it's, it's really not that easy to define. I mean, in short, what we call fairy tales are um, stories that deal with the fantastic things that if we think of our bookend phrases, once upon a time in a land far, far away and happily ever after, those kind of set the stage for what what do we consider to be where and when a, a fairy tale takes place. One of, the, one of the issues behind how we define this term that folklorists contend with is whether we're talking about an oral folktale or a more literary creation, which is what the term fairy tale usually has been applied to more. And the reality is, is that those two methods of transmission, print publication and word of mouth, have gone in and out and tied up in knots and, you know, taken over each other's domain so many times over the course of history that when we want to try and say that a fairy tale is a literary creation or a folktale is a oral tradition, um, it, it really gets theoretically fun, but a little bit impractical at times. So I think it's I think it's safest to say that a fairy tale is a fantastical story um, that's sort of set in a world outside of ours, but recognizable enough that it's fun to imagine the what if question. I was uh, going back to the Brothers Grimm uh, this morning, just to preparing for the program and reading a few of these fairy tales. There's some differences from from the Disney. Uh, most of us would know know these from from Disney. Uh, for example, Little Red Riding Hood. Um, it, it, I don't think that's been turned into a Disney movie. But I, I had forgotten in this tale, um, the, the grandmother and Little Red Riding Hood both get eaten by the wolf. But at least in the version I was reading, a woodsman comes along, uh, cuts open the wolf, and there's a happy ending. Yes, exactly. And and you're hitting on one of the sort of exciting things about fairy tales, which is that by definition, they are adaptable and changeable, right? So Disney can swoop in, make its own version of something, totally change a bunch of details, and that's no more or less legitimate than any other version. A lot of people go back to the Grimm's and kind of feel like, here's the the original, here's the real version of this. And the truth is the Grimm's did exactly what Disney has done, only they did it in the mid-1800s. They gathered up tales. They didn't write these tales. They collected them from people around them. And, 
you know, tidied them up a little bit. So we read the Grimm's versions and think, whoa, that's awful. Well, sometimes it's even more awful what their source material was. Um, the earlier versions that we have of Little Red Riding Hood, as you brought up, don't have a, a woodcutter coming in to, to save the day. Um, Little Red Riding Hood and Grandma die at the end of Charles Perrault's version. Um, he was a French writer writing in the late 1600s. And that's the end of the story. That wolf eats Red Riding Hood and Grandma, and too bad. Yeah. Uh, let me read this uh, quote from Walter Benjamin. I don't know who he is. I, I was reading this a Slate article, just Googled up fairy tales, and there's an article on, on uh, fairy tales. Walter Benjamin says, The fairy tale tells us of the earliest arrangements that mankind made to shake off the nightmare which the myth had placed upon its chest. Mm, yeah. So we're, we're dealing with, I guess, fears and concerns. Yeah, definitely. And and wish fulfillment as well. You know, a, a lot of definitions, getting back to that sort of slippery idea of defining a fairy tale, deal with the idea that fairy tales, unlike legends, are strictly fictional. So that when, when we hear a fairy tale, we know we're dealing with fantasy. Fairy tales take place Again, in that once upon a time fantasy world, um, that's very different from a story taking place last week in your neighborhood, right? And um, so we can enact a lot of things in sort of this slightly shifted world and deal with a lot of stuff that, that goes on there that comments on our world here. And, and we do that metaphorically. We do it literally sometimes. Um, you know, a lot of people read into Little Red Riding Hood a very pragmatic warning of don't go wandering off the path alone if you're a vulnerable person like a young woman would be. Um, others have read metaphors into it. Charles Perrault very explicitly says he appends a little rhyming moral to the end of his version of Little Red Riding Hood that says, I hope you all get that I'm not talking about wolves. I'm talking about men and the dangers that they present to young women. And, you know, up, up, right up until today, we still run with those literal and metaphorical understandings of all of these stories. We're talking about fairy tales on the program today, and we're going to get into talking about fractured and reinvented fairy tales. Uh, and you're welcome to join this conversation. Your favorite fairy tale? Uh, what are your thoughts? 1-800-826-1495 is the number, and the email is upraxcess at gmail.com. We're talking with USU folklorist Lynn McNeil and with Rochelle Workman, who does reinvented fairy tales, a part of her uh, best-selling books. Rochelle Workman, I wonder, what are your memories? How did you grow up with with uh, fairy tales? You you've taken on reinventing some fairy tales. You you must have been exposed to the, the quote unquote straight versions of these probably from a young age. Yes, so I grew up with the Disney version. I didn't read any of the Grimm or any of those fairy tales growing up, um, and that's I loved them. You know, they were fun. They it kind of made me happy. <laughs> and I actually have children of my own. And um, so, of course, we watched them with the kids as well. And so they've just kind of been a part, a part of our lives for, you know, forever. And I love them. And I love um, taking the ideas from the Disney fairy tales and making them, um, you know, even more different. <laughs> yeah. What, what Did you have a favorite growing up? Uh, my favorite probably was either um, Snow White or Cinderella growing mm -hmm. up. Those two are probably my favorite. Do you, have you thought, thought about why, or you, or you just like them? Uh, <laughs> um, 
I'm trying. I was trying to think back when I was young. Uh, I think I really liked the idea of in Snow White. Just the whole. It was kind of scary. You know, it was scary that this girl was so unloved, and um, she ends up going into the forest and you know, kind of finding love. I just. I think I really liked that. And with Cinderella, honestly, it was the mice. I loved the mice. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. What about your children? What what do they respond to? Uh, you know, they're a little bit older now. But growing up, uh, it was things more like Aladdin and um, Beauty and the Beast. Those were kind of coming out when they were younger. Um, and I think they just really liked the adventure, you know, the adventure of it uh, in Aladdin and... Um, with Beauty and the Beast, I think it had to do with, you know, I don't think they understood why they liked it at the time, but I think it was, you know, just knowing that maybe inside we're a little bit different, but outside, you know, just how, how am I trying to say this? That I think they really liked the fact that the Beast was actually quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and um, yeah, I think they enjoyed that, and I know I did. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes we don't give children enough credit. They, I think they get the messages, right? Yeah. That, that are there and, and respond so. to them. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, a while back there was a whole princess craze. I don't know if that's continuing. I, and I, I only saw this from afar because I never experienced this, <laughs> never being a little girl. Uh-huh. But um, I don't know if your kids went through that. And that, that sort of relates into the fairy tales. Girls like to imagine themselves as princesses. Yeah, and honestly, with my girls, I think they liked not so much the princess aspect, but the dressing up. Okay, <laughs> I think right. they yeah. liked, you know, getting getting in a pretty dress and putting on pretty, you know, makeup and things like that. Um, and yeah, they did enjoy that for a, a, sh- a short time. I want to say maybe a couple years, <laughs> <laughs> and then it went to things like um, that I enjoy writing about as well. You know, the the whole vampires and and scary things. You know, so. Well, is that trends or that they get older and they're more able to encounter the scary things? I, you know, I think it has to do with a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that during that time there was the whole vampire craze, but also at the same time, you know, uh, they wanted to kind of confront their fears, I think, is a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes dressing up like what you're scared of, you know, makes it less scary. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that can work. We're talking about fairy tales on the program today. We have with us uh, USU folklorist Lynn McNeil and Utah author uh, Rochelle Workman. Rochelle Workman um, reworks uh, fairy tales. Very interesting. We'll get into talking as we go along about her uh, her version of Beauty and the Beast, where she imagines what if the beauty were also the beast. Uh, very interesting, and her her Snow White. She has a series of Snow White, in which uh, which has a, a vampire twist. Um, let me turn back to the Slate article, Lynn McNeil. Uh, this author uh, uh, quotes this uh, quote from Walter Benjamin, which mm-hmm. I which I gave us earlier, and then this author goes on to say what Benjamin means by arrangements. And the, the original quote, the fairy tale tells us of the earliest arrangements that mankind made to shake off the nightmare from which the myth had placed upon its chest. Author goes on, what Benjamin means by arrangements, I think, is that fairy tales are like rudimentary contracts. They're provisional fixes for the horrifying problem of reality, adulthood, time, death. 
a set of truths so pure and terrible that they can only live in myth. Fairy tales have terms. They'll bring you to an uncanny, dreamlike place in which natural laws are waived. In return, you must accept wild nonsense logic, impenetrability, and with uh, no three-dimensional uh, characters, fairy land a degree of solitude. I, I love the idea of fairy tale as contract. I think that's I think that's great. And I think that's applicable in a lot of senses. I, I feel that because fairy tales deal so much with transformation and so much with the fantastic that they they do provide us with sort of a an interesting way to navigate unknowns, definitely. And I think as the author there mentioned in traditional fairy tales, we're often dealing with very one-dimensional characters. If we look at the original oral versions of a lot of the tales that we have, there's no elaborate backstory on these characters. There's no, you know, description of complex motivation. Even their names are unbelievably simplistic. The the Jack of stories who appears as Hans in German and Ivan in Russian, they're all the name John. And we still use the word John to mean an unidentified man, a John Doe or something like that. Um, the women's names are often just descriptions of what they look like or what they're doing. Belle means beautiful in French. Cinderella means little ash girl. Uh, Red Riding Hood is what she's wearing. Snow White, the color of her skin. Um, all of the original versions give us, you know, these incredibly universal themes. We often see them emerge as sort of binaries, life and death and good and evil and old and young and ugly and beautiful. Um, and then gives us sort of these bare bones constructs in which to think about those things, which leaves us a whole lot of leeway to play with those constructs, to continue addressing those giant themes, but to fill in the skeleton of that story in a lot of different ways, in ways that are resonant to us now, in ways that were resonant to the Grimm brothers in the 1800s. And at all times, we've always been able to sort of adapt these these stories to our communicative goals and our cultural contexts. And I think that's why we see the ongoing viability of these stories. They're not like published novels that are copyrighted that if I were to make, you know, my version of the Da Vinci Code, I would be arrested for copyright infringement. Mm -hmm. But I do get to write my version, say, of Beauty and the Beast, as Rochelle has done. And that is acceptable because the genre of fairy tale is is there to be played with. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, what Lynn was just talking about, adaptations. And this is what Rochelle Workman has done. Uh, she uh, reinvents uh, fairy tales uh, for, so, for example, her Beauty and the Beast, she imagines what would it be like if the beauty were also the beast. Very interesting uh, idea. We're going to talk about this. We want to uh, hear from you. What's your favorite fairy tale? Uh, what is your favorite reinvented fairy tale? Or how would you take a fairy tale and reinvent it? I was on a website uh, yesterday. Uh, this was geared for children. Uh, but it was uh, encouraging children to take a fairy tale and, and reinvent it. Uh, kind of a nice creative process. We'll talk more on fairy tales, and you can join the program at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Grand Brothers Addison Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast on Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Featuring Cote Madame and Cote Monsieur. Made with sourdough bread, ham, and cheese. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. 
Just when you thought it was safe to enter your garden, well, there's a lot of reproducing going on as insects prepare for the fall. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden, USU Extension entomologist Diane Alston helps you control the bad guys while encouraging the good guys using integrated pest management. Die, earwigs! Live, lady beetles! Then it's the circle of life as Nancy Williams reads a favorite literary selection on petals and prose. That's this Thursday at 10 o'clock on the Zesty Garden. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're all familiar with fairy tales. They're archetypes. They help us deal with our fears and wish fulfillment. Uh, they've uh, seeped into our, uh, I guess, general consciousness. And uh, from the days of the Brothers Grimm to uh, through Disney, that's how most of us know many of these fairy tales nowadays, uh, to reinventions of fairy tales. We're going to get into this and what it means, uh, how we're reflecting our cultural concerns, uh, we have with us Lynn McNeil, who's a folklorist at uh, USU. She's an instructor and director of online development for the folklore program at USU, co-founder and faculty advisor for the USU Folklore Society. And we ha- have with us as well uh, Utah author Rochelle Workman, who writes Reinvented Fairy Tales. Her books include A Beauty So Beastly, in which she imagines what would happen if the beauty was also the beast. And her Blood and Snow st- series is a retelling of Snow White with a vampire twist. So maybe to uh, introduce uh, this portion of the program, I was on a uh, website, uh, it's called readwritethink.org, uh, directed to children. They're encouraging them to uh, think about fairy tales and maybe reinvent fairy tales. And, and so, I hope I tell this correctly, uh, they had a tale there for as an example. It was called uh, The Prince and the Frog. Of course, the original is The Princess and the Frog, and... Um, uh, she kisses the frog, uh, finally is convinced, and he turns into a prince. In this version, um, the uh, frog encourages the prince to kiss the frog. Uh, he resists. He says, that's for princesses. The frog persists. The uh, prince is very lonely, and so he kisses the frog, and he turns into a frog, and they live happily ever after. So there's a, there's, it's kind of a humorous twist. And Lynn McNeil, this works because we know where it should be going, and so the 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 surprise twist ending is funny to us. Exactly. And that's, you know, fairy tales act as sort of these shared touchstones of communication. And they provide us with a way to suddenly understand a lot of symbolism and meaning and themes in something um, that that maybe is is short or brief or something like that. The minute you see a frog and a crown, you have that frog prince story in your mind. The minute you see a young girl in a red hood, you have Little Red Riding Hood, a glass slipper, Cinderella. I mean, we have these these little motifs of tales that have all this communicative weight to them. And so we only need these little bare references, and suddenly we are aware of an entire narrative reality that then the basis is laid to start maybe playing with that reality. And I love the line, that's for princesses. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that, that shows a kind of nice savvy awareness on whatever child, you know, wrote that version that, um, well, that doesn't make it. Why would that just be for princesses? That doesn't, that doesn't really jive anymore. And I think that's part of the trend we see is we look at tales that have been canonized in a different time. 
and we say, well, that doesn't reflect my reality anymore. You know, princesses maybe don't need rescuing. Maybe they rescue themselves. And so we reshape some stories where princesses rescue themselves. And that, you know, we, we know where we're coming from. So the, the message is sort of doubled. It's not just a story about a, a strong you know, adventurous heroine. It's a story about a heroine that we know previously was perhaps weak or or needy, who is now cast as strong and adventurous, and and that gives extra weight to that to that new communication. And we've seen this a lot in recent years with Disney, mm-hmm. uh, female characters in fairy tales who previously had to be rescued by, you know, the, the prince charming, now rescuing themselves, or and perhaps rescuing their prince charming as well. Yeah, and in the you know the the Shrek series as well, we see a lot of this idea of fairy tales being turned on their heads, and you know they're well-made movies, and they'd be funny on their own, but a very large amount of the humor comes from what we know about those characters' original stories as yeah. as well, and it just adds that that extra weight to it. Uh, there's another. Just the title uh, tickled me on this on this site. Uh, the title of the story was "The Wolf Who Cried Boy." <laughs> <laughs> there again, it's turning turning the fairy tale on it on its head. Uh, let's turn back to uh, Rochelle Workman. Uh, so, Beauty and the Beast, I, I think, was was one of your favorites. Uh, how did this come to you? That I'm I'm going to change uh, this this story. Um, you know, it was. I don't want to say it was organic, but it was. It just kind of happened. I started with um, Snow White, and you know that just happened. It was so random. Um, they redigitized Snow White, the DVD, and um, my kids and I were watching the commercial, and we just started talking about, well, what would happen if Snow White woke up as a vampire? And um, so that's how it happened with Blood and Snow, and I realized that a lot of people really like the reinvented fairy tales, and um, so I just started thinking about some other characters that I could bring into the world, and... um, I was thinking about Beauty and the Beast and how, you know, Belle is, she's just kind of this sweet person who comes and kind of rescues um, the Beast. You know, they kind of rescue each other, but really without her, he never would have gotten out of his beastly form. Um, and so I just wanted to, to change it, and I wanted it to be about her um, mostly and about, you know, how in the world today... Um, we need to look within ourselves and see just how beautiful or beastly we are. And so that's how it came about that, you know, of course it's more than just her being kind of a jerk at the beginning, you know, it's, it's, there's creatures involved um, that I created, um, the Vector and the Locanus, which are werewolves and werecats. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how it came about. Just, so tell us a little. Within, basically. <laughs> and I think that that's why Beauty and the Beast is is one of the most popular, because it really uh-huh. is. It, you know, I guess within uh, each of us we have beauty and we have beast. Yes. Yeah, Lynn. Um, I was just going to point out. I think that's absolutely true, and I think there's a really great message of you know appearances can be deceiving, and and I think that one of the things that I really enjoyed Rochelle about reading this book was that acknowledgement that it's not nowadays so much that the beast has to be overcome completely but that that duality of beast and beauty sort of can be reconciled we don't we're not looking for civilization to 100% wipe out the uncivilized where we're now reshaping that 
dichotomy into something maybe a little bit more harmonious. And one of my favorite scholarly commentaries on Beauty and the Beast that I read recently um, was talking about how that we, you know, we have all this buildup of beauty learning to love a beast. And then right when she learns to love a beast, he turns into this sort of demure, handsome prince. And, you know, the idea that maybe that's a little disappointing to beauty, who really kind of embraced this animalistic nature here. And oh, now he's you know, good looking, but kind of typical all of a sudden. And I, I, I like the idea that maybe you can have the best of both worlds. You don't have to be either beastly or beautiful. You can be beastly and beautiful. Does right. this does this get us into? And this is one of my my pet peeves during my dating years. I'll I'll open up here. Um, the, the 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 girls I liked wanted to go for the bad boy. Wanted to reform the bad boy. And here I am. I'm a nice guy. You know. In fact, my brother and I, one one day, and it only lasted for a day. We we got tired of this, and we we tried to be bad boys. We just didn't. We we couldn't we couldn't pull it off because we got tired of the of looking at the girls that we we liked and and seeing they're going for the bad boys who were treating them badly, and we thought, look over here, look over here. Anyway, I'm through venting, but but that, that it kind of it kind of uh, fits in because you're. You're attracted to some of those elements. You don't. You don't want the guy to be totally beastly, but mm-hmm. you, you you want a little bit of that. Yeah, that that sense. I mean, it's much more adventurous to live in an enchanted castle with a beast than to just be like, oh, yeah, he's a prince. Yeah, kind of yeah. like normal. <laughs> <laughs> We've uh, looks like my my pathetic story has touched some people here in the studio. So, uh, by the way, the emails uh, upraxis at gmail dot com if you'd like to respond to the show or, or to my sad personal life, or 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, so, Rochelle Workman, I, I wonder if you agree with, with this, this view that, um, you know, there, there is, you know, once the beast is transformed, that something is, is kind of lost there. That, you know, maybe the, maybe the girl's disappointed, or in this case, you know, the, the girl with the, with the guy. Um, yeah, I do. I think that's why I came up with the idea of beauty, you know, also being the beast. And when you read the story, um, you find that there's actually, you know, a beast within a lot of the characters. Um, and, you know, kind of along those lines, I think that, I think we as people, and I don't, I don't want to say we've grown up a little bit as people, but I think we've come to recognize that it's okay if we're not perfect. It's okay if we show a little bit of our, you know, our beastly side, you know, as well as our beautiful side. But it's okay if we have both of those within us. There's an interesting element in the book. Maybe you could, uh, you know, give us the brief plot point. Uh, uh, Beatrice Kavanaugh um, uh-huh. is considered American royalty, and um, after accusing a maid of stealing, a very kind and, and handsome a guy named Adam uh, shows up, it turns out that uh, he wants her to drop charges against his mother. So she she brings him in, and it kind of has the elements of the original story, but she is determined to break him, right? She she wants him yeah. to become beastly. That's an interesting twist right. on the story. Yeah. Um, well, because you find out in the beginning of the book um, that she is escaping a different realm, and once that escape is made... Um, she actually looks beautiful, um, and, you know, she's got the castle, she's got the, you know, and it's actually set in Utah, so that's kind of fun. But, you know, she's got the big house, and she's got all the money, 
but really she can't enjoy any of it. She can't feel anything. Um, and so that's, that's all she knows. And so she wants to kind of, without even realizing it, she wants to make him feel the way that she feels, which is, you know, angry and nothing, basically. So, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and we don't want to give away the ending, of course, uh, the, the key yeah. key plot points. But, uh, of course, probably both characters are going to have some movement as we go along. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lynn, what, what did you re- respond to? What, what did you find in the in the book? You know, some of the things that, that I really enjoyed when, when thinking about the, the Beauty and the Beast tale type, you know, folklorists like to look at tales as types rather than by their titles because they appear so cross-culturally that if we say... Cinderella, it's, you know, are we speaking about the French tale or, you know, are we also including all of the corollaries from other cultures that might go by a different name? So it's easier to say tale type 510 than it is to say Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast is tale type 425C, very specific. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's, it's a fairly concrete plot outline because that specific iteration Um, did come from a literary source from the 1700s in France. But that literary source, as almost every literary fairy tale has, was, of course, based on earlier folk elements that come from the entire 425 range of tales. It's I know it sounds so silly to refer to tales by numbers, um, but uh, it's it's kind of intriguing and sometimes useful. And one of the other stories um, of tale type 425 is Cupid and Psyche, which goes back to the second century AD. And I actually, as I was reading A Beauty So Beastly, found some really fun parallels, specifically with the Cupid and Psyche tale, Rochelle. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but um, it was neat to see kind of the full breadth of the Beauty and the Beast story being utilized in this new version, rather than just taking, you know, the the contemporary one and turning on its head. It's sort of like even older motifs ended up roped in. I don't want to say what they are because I don't want to give the plot away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you, you've you given me some fodder to, uh, to to appear very intelligent at parties now. Yeah, and, there you uh, go. So also, oh, yes. <laughs> that's that's, Cupid and Psyche. That's, that's 425. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Everyone knows that. <laughs> By the way, Snow White? How did... uh, 709. 709. There you All go. Right. Wow. Very, very don't good. quiz me on very any good. others. I okay. like those are the <laughs> ones I know. We're talking about fairy tales and what they mean and reinvented fairy tales on the program today. And we're talking with a USU folk Florist Lynn McNeil, and with Rochelle Workman, who is a Utah author who reinvents uh, fairy tales. Um, Rochelle Workman, I noticed uh, sort of your tagline, you write reinvented fairy tales and out-of-this-world sci-fi romance as well. Yes, uh-huh, I do. Um, I have a series called um, The Immortal Essence Series. It's actually um, about a girl from another planet who gets exiled to Earth, and yeah, her story there. It's a love story, of course, because I do like to write about romance. But yeah, yeah. so th- these the, you know these are sort of new fairy tales, I suppose. If, if you know they're sort of archetypal stories, and you get into uh, science fiction as well. This is this is a very effective way to uh, to talk about real issues, uh, you know, parables and and allegories. If you yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, go yes, no, yes, I'm go, ahead. go ahead. Okay. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that it, it is absolutely, and if we look at, um, I think one of the strongest examples we have contemporarily of that is Star Wars. If you look at, you know, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, 
is basically once upon a time in a land far, far away, only we are seem to be more on board these days with our fantastical faraway land being space mm-hmm. than being, you know, some sort of fairy realm. Um, though I think the fairy realm has swung right back into popularity, definitely. But um, mm-hmm. a lot of scholars have found parallels between the plot of Star Wars and Tale Type 300, which is the Dragon Slayer, um, to the point where, I mean, it's... The, I think the first component of Tale Type 300 is um, a young farmer sets off with his two trusty dogs and his magic sword. And if you make those dogs into R2-D2 and C-3PO and his sword into a lightsaber, you've pretty much got Luke Skywalker's situation going on there. So it is fun to see these sort of classic traditional plot lines emerge in entirely different genres. Mm. Uh, and I'm thinking of um, there's some of that adventure archetype in uh, in Frozen. Mm-hmm. And if you've got kids or nieces and nephews, you've seen Frozen far too many times. Um, <laughs> you can sing "Let It Go" you, you from can sing memory. Let it go yeah. from memory. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's a very well done, um, you know, production. I don't, I don't, Rochelle, do you have that experience in your house? Frozen's playing oh, nonstop. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes, we we have the soundtrack and we've seen the movie and we have the movie. Um, I absolutely loved it. I thought that it. I love the idea of taking this princess and just the whole, you know, the ending where she it's true love that saves uh, her sister, but it's not necessarily the true love that you think of. It's not the prince and the princess. It's sisters, and I love that. Yeah, there's yeah. very very interesting <laughs> twist, and, and I, I, yeah. there's probably no one listening who has not seen it. So we can you know we can, we can talk right. about the ending, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I was very uh, surprised by that because we you know the the setup usually is if you have four characters, two women, two men, they're all going to end up together, and you know it's going to have two happy couples. That was a very interesting twist. Yeah, I think um, a lot of fairy tales the the ending event is a a wedding, you know, that's how a lot of these things mm-hmm. end. And I think it's a huge reflection of contemporary society now that we're moving away from that being what means happiness mm-hmm. in, in the end. Not to say that it's not a happy ending, but that there are right. other happy endings as well. Right. We're going to take another yeah. break. When we come back with Lynn McNeil and Rochelle Workman, uh, I'll be interested to uh, talk about uh, Snow White with a Vampire Twist. It's a very interesting, uh, interesting twist. And we'll talk more about uh, fairy tales, this idea of fractured uh, fairy tales, uh, which uh, that specific name maybe goes back to Rocky and Bullwinkle and, uh, and their, their funny takes on, on twists on, on fairy tales. We'll talk a little bit more about what fairy tales mean and uh, what it means when they're changed. More following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Elon Magazine a bi-monthly artistic celebration of inspirational stories from extraordinary women defining the Southwest lifestyle through culture, art, and adventure. Information at elonwoman.com. Time to make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe for... Raisin Oat Muffin. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. From PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
And if you're familiar with Rocky and Bullwinkle, you'll recognize that as the music for Fractured Fairy Tales. I think they also use that for the, their fables, which, you know, it's kind of a similar similar thing. Uh, this is the idea, Lynn McNeil, they, they uh, on that show, they would have a lot of fun with, we all know the story, and then they would change it, and then that, you have fun with that. Yep, fairy tales are like the ultimate inside joke. You know, I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where and someone says something that sounds random or, you know, innocuous to you and everyone else bursts out laughing and you have that immediate sense of, okay, I'm missing something. I didn't, I, I don't get what everyone else gets. Fairy tales are, are one of those things that we can be relatively certain that most people get. So they're just so useful when it, when it comes to parody or, you know, alteration or, or updating or anything like that. We, we, we just, they come preloaded with themes and ideas and, and constructs. So the minute our expectations are broken, we, we see, you know, this idea in a whole new light, which is really fun. We're talking with uh, Lynn McNeil. You heard from her just right there. She's an instructor and director of online development for the Folklore Program at Utah State University, co-founder and faculty advisor for the USU Folklore Society. We have with us on the telephone uh, Utah author Rochelle Workman. She writes Reinvented Fairy Tales. We've been talking about her book, A Beauty So Beastly, in which she imagines what would happen if the beauty was also the beast. And we'll get to talking here in this final segment about her Blood and Snow series, which is a retelling of Snow White with a vampire twist. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Lynn McNeil, I wonder, I don't know, speaking back then, say the Brothers Grimm and now with Disney and, and whatever, uh, are, as a general consumer of fairy tales, I don't. I don't know if we notice the meaning, you know, the the warnings, uh, or we just take them as as fun stories. Uh, then and now, of course, Perot you mentioned he he adds a an epigram on on the end saying, "Look, here's the message." Yeah, exactly. In case you didn't get it, here's what I meant to to communicate. Yeah, I think one of the cool things about fairy tales is that we're never done interpreting what they mean. You know, there's no point where someone publishes a journal article or a magazine article and says, well, here's what Little Red Riding Hood means. And we all go, oh, all right, done. That's it. Now we know. Um, and there's certainly people who've tried. And, and interpretation has taken a lot of a lot of turns. I think the, the thing is you can look at them so many different ways. People have looked at the original Beauty and the Beast stories as dealing with um, changing issues of social class in France in the original literary version. Um, one of the themes that arises is that Belle is like basically middle class and that the Beast, once he's a prince, is a prince. And it's sort of like, well, they can't get married. You know, forget the whole beast thing. She's not a princess. And it turns out she is, so it's okay. But, you know, there, there's that meaning. And then we get sort of this, you know, more, you know, uh, subconscious maybe or psychological issues with uh, beastliness and duality and the, you know, internal nature of human beings that, that people, you know, are both beastly and courtly at, at the same time. And, you know, in the 1970s, psychoanalysis was huge. Bruno Bettelheim argued that, again, specifically Beauty and the Beast was a resolution of the Oedipal conflict between father and daughter. And so so we we love interpreting fairy tales is the main thing. And I think it's to our benefit that we kind of will never be done 
understanding them. And of course, the minute we shift them to a new context, um, we get to reinterpret them all over again. Mm -hmm. You know, what does this mean now? The Grimm brothers were definitely out to capture the spirit as they saw it of Germany. They were felt that German culture was being overwhelmed by external forces and they wanted to preserve the German spirit, which of course meant occasionally making their tales reflect the German spirit a little better than they might have otherwise. Um, but that's to be fair, we all do that, right? We all adapt these tales to to cast the impression that we want, whether that's critical or glowing. Early in the program, you read a uh a stern lecture from the Grimm brothers to fellow folklorists, don't change things, uh, collect these tales exactly as you encounter them. And yet, as you say, they change, the, including for commercial purposes, apparently. Yeah, which... Make which, their, their books sell better. Really interesting. Um, they, you know, the Grimm brothers, Jakob and Wilhelm, were, were scholars. Um, Wilhelm was more a, a poet, maybe, but they were both librarians, certainly, and... Um, collected a lot of stuff other than folktales, too. They were they compiled a dictionary. Um, they collected German mythology and legends. But in one of their early uh, letters to other scholars who were collecting folklore, they said quite clearly, um, I have the quote here, above all, it is important that these items be recorded in the most exact and detailed fashion from the mouths of the informants faithfully and truthfully without any cosmetic touch-up or addition. So they were, you know, pleading with other scholars to collect these folktales in the same way, and then they totally didn't take their own advice. <laughs> we have we have their notes, you know, we have early versions that show that sometimes it was a little change in the... Uh, Last version of the manuscript before publication, um, it's Hansel and Gretel's mother who sends them out into the woods to die, not their stepmother. And at the very last minute, they changed it to stepmother. We can assume with the intent that it's a little less horrible, maybe mm -hmm. makes Germans look a little less bad if it's a stepmother as, a, as opposed to a mother. And then sometimes it's, you know, they added pages of sort of poetic riffing on certain themes. So it, it is interesting to see how they didn't take their own advice necessarily. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> and, and of course, Disney's famous for, you know, oh. changing things, make it like make it a little more palatable. Of course. You know, it would be distressing if Cinderella's stepsisters got their eyes pecked out by all those birds that had helped Cinderella get dressed. Yeah. You know, that would just maybe not make for a good children's animated film. Yeah. Or the version I was reading of Rapunzel this morning, um, Rapunzel and, and, the, and, and the prince... They get married, and you know, in secret, they have some children. Mm -hmm. uh, he, when he's just, you know, discovered, when the uh, sorceress discovers Rapunzel, and confronts the prince, he falls down and thorns, you know, um, make him blind. Yeah, people now, are getting uh, blinded all the time yeah. in these stories. And the Grimm's, if they took out, if they left in the violence, they took out the sex. Yeah. is usually how it happened. Early Red Riding Hood versions have her being made to undress and get in bed with the wolf uh, before he eats her. Um, earlier versions of Sleeping Beauty, the prince does not wake her up by kissing her. He finds her lying there. He sleeps with her. Um, she remains asleep, bears him some twins. The twins wake her up <laughs> after they're born. And then he comes back and sort of finds his family waiting for him and is like, oh, well, there you have it. Yeah. Um, and the, so we it's interesting to see the grim sensibility that that it was the the sexual content that they felt should be removed. And the violence was sort of OK, mm. you know. But but I hadn't I hadn't known about this. But but hearing some of these versions, you can better understand some of the concerns that were being played out, mm. uh, you know, and, and addressed. 
Yeah, absolutely, in, right? In, I mean, in these fairy tales, yeah. And you know what's interesting is that before the Brothers Grimm, these stories were not for children. They were not children's stories. They were everybody's stories. Children probably heard them because they were told in communal gatherings or at night around the fire and things like that. But they were not explicitly for children. These were like like our action-adventure movies are today. They were for adults and addressed adult themes. Mm. I turn back to Rochelle Workman. I wonder a similar question about the meaning. Of course, you know, I don't think many people would sit down with their children after watching one of these and say, "Here's the meaning." Um, I think kids kids get it. But uh, do you have conversations with with people? Maybe, maybe I could put it this way: uh, people who respond to a beauty so beastly, or to your blood and snow uh, series, are, are they responding to just having the, the the fun of the tale, or are they responding to some of the meaning behind it? Um, honestly, I think <clears throat> excuse me, it's just the fun of the story, um, which is why I write it. Of course, I do try to put a theme in all of my stories, um, you know, just because I think that makes it more cohesive. But mainly when I hear from readers, it's just how much they enjoyed the story, how, like with Blood and Snow, uh, they don't, there's not seven dwarves, there's seven, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, good-looking men that live, you know, young men, they're in high school, who live next door, um, so, which makes for a whole bunch of fun. Um, but, yeah, so I don't think they, I mean, you know, some people do see the underlying meaning, but I think most of the time they're just reading for the enjoyment mm-hmm. of it. Which, which most of us, you know, that's, that's what we do. And, and then maybe the meaning yeah. sort of uh, creeps up on us, you know. Uh, right. so, so tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the Blood and Snow uh, series. This is Snow White with a Vampire Twist. Right. So um, in this story, she is in Salem, Massachusetts. And I did have somebody the other day ask me, why did you pick Salem? And I think it would be so obvious, you know, just because of its mm-hmm. history. Um, but honestly, for me, it was more than that. At the time that I started writing it, I was living in Sharon, Massachusetts, which is, you know, just a little suburb of Boston. And so, of course, I was really interested in Salem and did the history on it. Um, but, yeah, so Snow White is set in Salem, Massachusetts. And it's about a girl who... Um, is or she thinks she's ordinary she thinks she's beyond ordinary and of course over the course of this story she comes to realize that actually there's a vampire queen who wants her and um you know she has to go through certain things to see what's going to (laughs) happen so it's really fun yeah uh and uh, i guess vampires are so interesting you can go so many different directions with vampires yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd actually heard the term term revenant a long time ago. I want to say like ten years ago, and um, I wanted to put in my story a revenant because, um, you know, for me, I wanted it to be something not all the way human and not all the way vampire, so kind of in between. And so when I wrote Blood and Snow, um, she gets bit by her hunter. So there there are the characters from Snow White. There's a queen who's evil and Snow White, and then kind of her absentee parents, um, her dad and her stepmother. And um, then there's the hunter, of course, and the the seven dwarves who are actually brothers. Um, They're actually adopted brothers, and they're not at all related, and they're not short. (laughs) Mm. 
uh, by the way, uh, are have you thought about any other of these fairy tales that you, that you'd like to reinvent? Oh yes, um, I actually have the Cindy Chronicles as well, which that came out after um, the Blood and Snow series, um, and that is with her best friend, who is Cinderella or Cindy. She goes mm. by Cindy, and she is a witch, and she gets her own story in that series. And um, then I also have a retelling of Aladdin. Um, it's actually the second season of Blood and Snow, and. Um, so yeah, so Jasmine is is that one, and she's you know a vampire with wings, and it's kind of it goes along the story a little bit of Aladdin, and um, then next year I'm doing a retelling of Sleeping Beauty. It's called Ash's Curse. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, sounds like a lot of fun. It is so much fun. I love it. Yeah, and what what response are you getting? People like like these reinventions. Um, yeah, well, you know, I started writing Blood and Snow on a total whim. Like, I was just, I just decided, hey, I'm going to stop this other stuff that I'm writing that's kind of serious, and I'm just going to have a little fun. And I actually wrote Blood and Snow, um, I call it must-read TV. So <laughs> okay. I wrote it like a television show, you know, like a 30-minute television show. So, you know, you can, I, I released them in volumes of about twelve to 15,000 words. And I released it every uh, book every couple of weeks. Oh, that's and right. It's called a people, season. <laughs> yeah. So mm-hmm. I released 12 and then I did uh, four shorter stories. And that was the first season of Blood and Snow. And, you know, it's been read about a half a million times. Um, so I guess that people really, really like it. It, it has, you know, over 10,000 reviews and most of them are really good. But I just received emails and tweets of people saying, please don't stop the series. And, and so, yeah, so I just kept going. Interesting. Um, maybe here at the end, just have a couple minutes left um, and bring this forward to the latest, which is, um, I think it's Disney, Maleficent. Mm-hmm. And they're, yeah. they're, they're treating, a, they're, they're putting a villainous front and center. What, uh, Rochelle, what do, you, what do you think about that? I loved it. I loved the idea of, because the thing is, is, in the Disney versions, um, you know, I can't say um, with the Grimm tales, obviously Lynn could, but um, with the Disney tales, we don't get to know anything about the villain. You know, she or he is just the bad guy who's going, who wants to hurt the good girl. And so I loved that they let us into the heart and the mind of Maleficent. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, as you guys know, Maleficent makes a little appearance in A Beauty So Beastly. And I didn't even plan that. I thought that was so awesome that it came out around the same time as my book. Yeah, it works out well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Lynn McNeil, what, what your thoughts? You, you know, I haven't seen Maleficent yet, which makes me sad because I really want to. But I do, I think Rochelle is is spot on. The, the original tales, you know, they don't give us, uh, as we talked about before, any complexity at all. You know, they, they give us these sort of bare bones, bad guy harasses, good guy situations. And that's where literature and film and television and all of these other forms get to come in and start filling all of that information in and filling it in in different ways and giving people unexpected motivations or, you know, complicated backstories that that give us an idea or even one of the things I think is most interesting now is that we're really seeing the genres of legend and fairy tale intermingle. Legends are sort of defined by being about 
truth, whether or not they're true, whereas fairy tales are really fantasy and transformation. And yet we see a, a legendary character like vampires, you know, coming into intermingle with these fairy tale characters. And, you know, we see it in Rochelle's books. We see it on television in Grimm and Once Upon a Time and the, the shows that, that really ask that, what if this were real? What if this weren't just a fantasy world? What if it were our world? What would that look like? How would that work? How would these people cope? What would a fairy tale character's occupation in modern day Manhattan be? You know, how would how would all of this play out? And I feel like that that complexity and that that sort of scrutiny of these things is really what we're seeing a lot of these days. And it's really fun because it's taking the stuff we've always seen one way and just, you know, handing it to us in these totally interesting and exciting other ways. We'll have to leave it there. Out of time, uh, USU folklorist uh, Lynn McNeil has been uh, with us, and uh, she has an interesting book out you should check out from Utah uh, USU Press, Folklore Rules. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And Rochelle Workman, a Utah author who does reinvented uh, fairy tales. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. RochelleWorkman.com is the place to go to check out her uh, her um, materials. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to uh, look at the life and times of Charles Manson, a new book out by Jeff Gwynn. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you so much for listening to Access Utah today. Um, tomorrow we come back for another program. Um, Jeff Gwynn Manson, The Life and Times of uh, Charles Manson. Thank you so much, and uh, we appreciate it. Um, like you may know, you can always uh, listen to this or previous episodes just by going to upr.org. The time now is uh, 